The issue of U.S. nuclear weapons entered the public discourse in the last weeks with the release and popularity of a major three-hour-length movie entitled Oppenheimer. As U.S. military strategy prioritizes major power conflict with other major nuclear powers, including Russia and China, the question of nuclear weapons urgently needs a major debate inside the United States. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we're talking with Greg Mello. Greg is co-founder and executive director of the Los Alamos Study Group. Greg Mello, welcome back. Nice to be here. Thank you, Brian. You are in New Mexico. You are the Los Alamos Study Group. That's where Robert Oppenheimer set up the Manhattan Project along with the Pentagon and that whole array of scientists and engineers that ultimately led to the dropping, the creation, and then the dropping of atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the beginning of a new world, even as Oppenheimer clearly remarked, wasn't just a, a new weapon, it was a new era. And certainly it was a new era. I don't really want to talk to you so much about the movie. I want to encourage people to go see the movie. It's a serious movie. It's three hours long. What I want to talk to you about is the program itself the nuclear weapons issue itself, because you know it's just missing inside the US public discourse. And, and even this movie, as interesting as it is, it's just a movie. You know, when I came out of the movie theater, Greg, I was struck by the first comment I heard out on the sidewalk was a middle-aged gentleman talking to his family. And he said, well, I'd be interested to know how much of that is actually true. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, because, of course, with however you spin the narrative, all of it was true. But again, there's this profound ignorance in the United States, and it's sort of a, an enforced ignorance because the U.S. mainstream media doesn't talk about this. But what could be bigger than the production of massive numbers of weapons that end life, if used, end life as we know it, not just human life, but all life? Anyway, I want to get your First, your take, you're in the Los Alamos, you're in New Mexico, that's where the Trinity test was. Let's just talk about how it all starts with the Trinity test and what the Manhattan Project was. Yes. So the Manhattan Project, as you know, everyone knows, I think, was a major effort during World War II to build a, an atomic bomb. It cost a lot of money at the time, used a lot of resources. There were Oh, there were well over 100, between 100 and 200,000 people working on this project, of which only about 2% of the money was spent at Los Alamos. So Los Alamos, financially, in terms of manpower, was the small part of the whole thing, but it is was the focal point and the place where the very expensive plutonium and uranium arrived at and where the bomb was crafted and shipped from. So... 
you know, the project began because the War Department and the emigre scientist community was deeply concerned about the possibility that the Nazis would create an atomic bomb and use it to threaten the West, the farther West, and basically win the war. So it's important, I think, to know that in the beginning, people were looking at a deterrent. There was no predisposition to actually use an atomic bomb at the beginning. And first it was, of course, all about Germany. Then after Germany's defeat was assured, in fact, you know, as the Allies marched across Europe, it became clear from interviews with scientists who were in the occupied Rome and Paris that there had never been a German bomb program. So the narrative shifted to, we need to finish this bomb in order to defeat the Japanese. Well, then the defeat of the Japanese began to get closer and closer, and it became a race to produce the bomb before the Japanese surrendered otherwise. Mm. And people knew at the top, the Truman knew, that the Russians were going to enter the war, and it became also a race to get the atomic bomb and likely use it. Well, the decision was made in May to use it in order to, well, as somebody put it, keep the Soviets in their lane, to keep them from conquering the northern Japanese islands. But most of all, in the conservative cabal that was in the War Department and in the business community to assure American dominance after the war. Let me just talk to you a little bit more about this, because I think younger folks might not fully appreciate how enforced the narrative was after the use of the atomic bomb on the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, August 1945. When I was a kid, we were all told the atomic bomb was great because it saved lives. Now, that would seem on its face to be kind of like, what? How could a bomb that incinerated 100,000 people or almost that many instantly, how could that save lives? And the narrative was, otherwise, the Japanese were so determined to keep fighting and fighting and fighting, they were going to fight to the last man. And if the U.S. had to invade Japan, hundreds of thousands of American soldiers and many Japanese would die. And by ending the war, we actually, we, the United States, actually saved lives. So that was the narrative. And I would say almost all of the children who I was a classmate with when we were young, we all heard the story. It was drummed into our heads and we believed it. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying basically is Japan was about to surrender. Japan was surrendering. Right. And the Soviets, who had liberated much of Eastern and Central Europe from the Nazis in their counteroffensive that began in 1943, they were about to declare war on Japan, which had not yet happened. And they did declare war in early August. So one way or the other, Japan was going to be out of the war. So the race to build the bomb and use the bomb was not to defeat Japan, but in order to use the bomb. In other words, it was its own end. Yeah. And, you know, it became a, a great big bureaucracy and so there were these bureaucratic forces. There would have been a massive investigation after the war because of all the money. And probably the biggest factor 
other than this conservative group of people who were anti-New Dealers, they were very much empowered with the death of FDR in, what is it, April, and Truman was sworn in. He didn't even know anything about the bomb until he was sworn in. And he was much more conservative, and he brought in a very conservative advisor who later became Secretary of State, Jimmy Burns, and the whole complexion of the U.S. government changed. And there was an internal struggle to get rid of, oh, the people who were too soft on the communists. And as you know, there were a lot of people around who had been doing business with the Nazis before the war and and were kind of sympathetic to the Nazis in a lot of ways. Alan Dulles, who played such a role in founding and directing the CIA, of course, prominent. Groves, who had grown up in in army camps at the end of the Indian Wars. You mean General Groves? Yes, General Groves, who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, who is played by Matt Damon, who makes him very sympathetic. He was extremely competent as an administrator, as a builder, but he was not a nice man. And he was a hard driver. And he was brutal also. And... He said in the spring of 1944 over dinner in Los Alamos that this bomb is not about Japan. This bomb is not about Germany. This bomb is about Russia. And this was appalling to Joseph Rothbard, who was at that dinner table, because the Russians were fighting and dying by the millions to defeat the Nazis. And they were our allies. And there was General Grove saying this, is, this bomb is really about subduing the Russians. And he told the Oppenheimer Security Clearance Board that much, you know, what's in the movie there, but not this particular part of it, that there was never any doubt in his mind from two weeks after the point where he took over the Manhattan Project that the Soviets were the enemy and the whole Manhattan Project was conducted on that basis. So, The factories were large in Los Alamos in the winter of 45 and early 1945. They built big factories, which weren't going to come online until toward the end of the year. It took so long to build them. Those were about the post-war stockpile that General Groves wanted to subdue the Soviets. He got a list of Soviet cities that could be bombed two weeks after the Japanese surrender offer. So before the actual ceremony on the USS Missouri, there was already a list of Russian cities that could be bombed with atomic bombs, which became a driver for the production. Let's talk about where we are then. I mean, ultimately, the Soviet Union, as Oppenheimer and the others were saying in the movie when they're talking with some of the more extreme right-wing elements, and Oppenheimer, just so our audience gets it, he goes from being a national hero, the father of the atomic bomb, the liberator of the, of the people of the world because World War II ended with the Japanese surrender in August 45. Nine years later, in 1954, the Atomic Energy Commission strips him of his national security clearance and basically... He's brought down because of his association with people who were on the left, some family members and some friends, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, that's kind of a subplot, and I don't want to really spend too much 
time on it. But at that time, at the time that the Manhattan Project is in full gear, they're rushing to build the bomb, the Soviet Union and the United States and Britain are allies against German fascism. They're military allies. And so obviously to tell scientists who were some of them very liberal, some of them even part of the left or associated with the left, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna build a bomb, but it's really against the Soviet Union. At the time, the Soviet Union was a US ally and 27 million Soviet citizens died to defeat fascism. The incongruity of that for the people who were devoting their lives to building this weapon that they thought was going to be used against fascism, it's not lost on them. And at the same time, it doesn't really matter because the scientists are actually just cogs in the machine. The real deciders are the newly emerging, what becomes the military industrial complex. Yeah, that's right. So really, the achievement of the Manhattan Project was not the atomic bomb. The achievement was the magnitude and nature of the organization and what it did to the US government. So there had not been anything like that before where science could be harnessed with engineering on an enormous scale and then the product was completely secret during the whole process until the very end. And in fact, after the war, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were not told how many nuclear weapons the US had, just it was orally transmitted to Truman in 49. Up through about that time, even the Joint Chiefs didn't know how many atomic bombs there were. That's how secret it was. So it became a new method of organizing government. If you want to think about you know, metaphors, government became irradiated mm. in a way. And now this style of a government within a government, a secret government with unlimited power over the rest has become almost normative. There is a memorandum that someone we know wrote for then Vice President Biden who was at the time curious as to how come the National Nuclear Security Administration of today was such a problematic organization. Why are we spending, here in the White House, this was under Obama, why are we spending so much time here in the White House dealing with the dysfunctions of this organization? And the answer traces back to the enormous power and the existential threat that lies in nuclear reactions, that it's just too much energy and too small of a space, a volume for government decision-making to be able to handle. So it has carved out these very special exceptions all across government. There's not really very much oversight, even to this day. Interestingly, you know, we tell our children or our children are taught we live in a democracy. It's a representative democracy. There's 535 members of Congress, 100 are senators, 435 are members of the House of Representatives. You know, given the destructive nature of nuclear weapons, including hydrogen bombs, you know, which was part of the debate going on during the Manhattan Project, you go on and build an even bigger super weapon 
the hydrogen bomb. And the scientists are saying there's no target that's big enough. I mean, the destructive capacity of the hydrogen bomb is so great, the magnitude is so vast, that it, it surpasses any potential target. So what's the point? And yet they were built. They were built and they're tested atmospherically. And all of this money is spent, money, hand over fist, trillions of dollars. And the weapons have never been used since 1945. And thankfully, not that we want to use them just because we have them, as Trump seemed to suggest, why don't we use them if we have them? But all that money, and there's no debate in Congress. I mean, no debate. I mean, it goes to what I think you're suggesting is that this other government, some people call it the deep state or whatever, all of this current nomenclature aside, starting with the Manhattan Project, there was this other bigger organized force that sucked up the budget of, the, of society and the organization and required the manpower and women power to make it all happen. And it was so big that the Congress is in a way like a fig leaf, like a camouflaged piece of, you know, like a democratic ornament on top of the real power of this other government. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And in, there's a formal power. They could ask for audits. They could stop programs that are grotesquely wasteful, but they don't. So many impediments are put in their way that it just doesn't happen. And then right now with the Ukraine war raging, a congressperson or senator that questions any of this too much will get branded as being not patriotic and so on. So they don't. It's a pity. And the enterprise grows like mad. There's an unprecedented growth going on here at Los Alamos. We'll see in 1950, there were 1,400 employees of Los Alamos lab, there's at least 10 times that many now. Wow. You know, before the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I want to, after this question, I want to talk to you about why Hiroshima and Nagasaki were picked. The bomb was dropped in, in New Mexico. Hmm. The first victims of the first nuclear bomb were New Mexicans. Again, you don't really quite get in the movie, the environmental impact of that nuclear test run and the other many, many other nuclear test runs that took place right. in Western states. Let's talk about that. Sure. And in a way, this comes back to the Potsdam Conference and the post-war relations of the United States and its allies and the Soviet Union. General Groves, wanted that test result in Truman's hands at Potsdam. When he was negotiating with Stalin, Truman was very inexperienced. He had no foreign policy experience and he was, you know, kind of a midget among giants there. Um, FDR style of government was one where he held all the strings pretty much and Truman was brought in for, well, it's a long story, but in any case, he didn't know anything about either the bomb or foreign policy. And so they wanted that test to take place in time, which made it necessary in the eyes of General Groves to ignore the weather reports, to go ahead and do the launch during a, a weather window, even though his advice, the advice given to him was not to do it. And of course, there would have been 
fallout. There would have been local victims irregardless, but it was made worse by the storm that was going on. And that became kind of a pattern. The medical people after that, they said, there's no place in the continental United States that's far enough from people to ever do a test in the continental United States again. And they knew it was disastrous, but they covered up what happened. Yeah. And atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons goes on. Well, the nuclear test ban treaty was signed between the U.S. and the Soviets in 63. So we have many, many years of additional nuclear explosions or nuclear tests that released a lot of radiation into the into the atmosphere. One of the things that's missing in the movie, of course, and I don't want to talk about the pros and cons of it because I don't think it's necessary, but you don't feel the the presence of Japanese people or Korean people. There were many Koreans who were, you know, sort of slave laborers in Hiroshima and maybe as many as 25% of the victims were actually Korean. The movie doesn't deal with the issue of Japan because, you know, there. I don't even want to talk about why it doesn't. That can be discussed some other time. But let's talk about the human impact on places where either there's nuclear tests or in the case of Japan, the actual bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Why were those two cities picked? And what's the impact later after the immediate impact of the bomb? Well, uh, let's see. We started with Trinity. So let's talk about the post-war tests for a moment. There were, I believe, and there's a very interesting study that came out a few years ago that augmented the one by the National Cancer Institute. There were hundreds of thousands of U.S. deaths from U.S. nuclear testing. The number of deaths and the disability and morbidity that has come from these tests has been greatly underestimated. This affected an entire generation of Americans. The tests in the Pacific were huge. From one of them alone, Castle Bravo, there were really large amounts of fallout that fell all over the world, on Europe, for example. And I can't give you a number, but I would say that if you included the Soviet tests, I bet you there's a million casualties so far from these tests. And the effects continue because some of the radionuclides are still in the, in the atmosphere, carbon-14. And Sakharov calculated what the long-term effects, how many deaths per megaton exploded. And Khrushchev didn't like it one little bit, but those numbers hold up pretty well. And, you know, people, there were thousands of deaths from every single test. Now, in Japan, those people were sacrificed to a geopolitical vision for the post-war world, and there's really no excuse for it under law at the time, under any sort of morality. It was not a human, it did not save lives. That's just absurd. And the military knew that at the time, the post-war surveys of the bombing survey also came to that conclusion that the bombs had no material effect on the end of the war. The entry of the Russians, yes, that had a big effect. And you know they knew that if the Russians started moving down from the north, which they would be essentially unopposed at that point, that Japan would lose that territory forever. And 
Japan would just be that much smaller a country. So, and why were those cities chosen? There was a list, I think they're from distant memory, perhaps 30 cities. As the movie does make clear, Secretary of War Stimson did not want to bomb Kyoto because it was too beautiful. He had had his honeymoon there. It was too important culturally for the Japanese. And they, of course, they were thinking about, they had to be thinking about Japan as a bulwark of the United States in the Western Pacific already at that time. And in the end, they kept the emperor, which would have saved, you know, the war could have been over months earlier if they had done so. They'd announced it. And one of the conditions, not the conditions, but one of the demands that was met by Japan from the United States after the unconditional surrender was for Japanese forces to stay in South Korea. I mean, Japan had colonized South Korea. I mean, the Korean people had suffered so much. And the U.S. said, no, stay there, stay there, because we didn't, we, the United States, don't want revolutionaries in, in Korea, anti-colonial revolutionaries who are aligned with the Soviet Union to take over the whole country. And so the Japanese stayed there. So it wasn't like the U.S. was thinking of the Japanese ruling establishment, including its military clique, as an existential enemy. In fact, they insisted they stay in Korea. And then when the U.S. basically occupies Japan, as it still does, it revived all of these elements, all, almost all of them. I mean, and the U.S. gave the Japanese capitalists access to the world market, including the U.S. market. It revived them because it wanted to use them as allies against revolution in Asia or against socialism or communism right. or the Soviet right. Union or by 1949, the People's Republic of China. So the dropping of the bomb, I think I really want people to wrap their heads around this because clearly the dropping of the bomb was not necessary. And from a point of view of military expediency and the Japanese ruling group who were very rich businessmen and capitalists, if they had to surrender to the Soviet Union, they probably have their property socialized. If they surrendered to the U.S., the U.S. was going to revive Japanese industry and they would be the captains of that industry. So it's clearly not what we were told. It wasn't a military necessity, but it was considered to be like this great advantage that the U.S. enjoyed because the Soviets didn't have a nuclear weapon. No one else did. The U.S. had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. But you can see in the Oppenheimer movie, the, the more astute scientists are saying, well, once we use this bomb, other people are going to get it. And we're going to keep building bigger bombs and bigger bombs and bigger bombs. Like this is, in fact, the beginning of an arms race. And Oppenheimer is among those who are saying, well, I hope there's going to be international arms agreements so that these weapons aren't a perpetual factor in political and military calculations, that it's kind of a one-off. But they were clearly wrong. And here we are, Greg, 2023, so many years later, right? almost 80 years later, and the U.S. is tearing up international arms agreements so that they can build new and different kinds of nuclear weapons to make them more usable. Right. I mean, that's where we really are at at this point. I think it's really important for people to understand that it seems far away, it seems ludicrous that the U.S. would be gaming with nuclear weapons, but that's precisely what's going on. Yes, and I think people should understand that it's bipartisan, that Trump made more noise about nuclear weapons and everything, but 
the big modernization program was begun under Obama, promised by Obama, and is continuing apace at an even greater fiscal scale under Biden. So there's almost no difference from one administration to the next in terms of nuclear weapons policy. There's sort of noise around the fringes, but that's about it. And I think there's another factor here. The United States would feel, because of the identification of nuclear weapons with the power of the state, the ultimate power of the state, there's a sense right now of inadequacy in the United States because Russia has fielded new kinds of nuclear weapon delivery systems. Doesn't really change the strategic calculus. Both countries would be utterly destroyed with a fraction of our respective arsenals. And China is rapidly building out its arsenal so that it can't be wiped out with a US first strike. So there's a sense of inadequacy and fearfulness that's related to the US slipping from its automatic dominance in the world. And that sense of inadequacy, let's say, is part of what's driving the need to build more nuclear weapons rapidly, even if they are the same kind, you know, the same explosive power, same variation, you know, light variations on the same delivery systems. But they feel the managers of the nuclear complex and the U.S. Strategic Command and the civilians in charge in the so-called deep state, they want those new nuclear weapons now. They want them as soon as possible. And of course, what this does is drives the contracting community, creates a lot of profit, a lot more employment for the pork barrel politicians. So this is also a big factor in what's pushing this. And it's addictive. One of the obvious issues would be the use of nuclear weapons if they're deployed anywhere, if it inaugurates a nuclear exchange. You know, once countries are on the escalation ladder, it's very hard to climb down. And if the other side has weapons that can annihilate you in a way you can't back down, and certainly politicians don't want to look weak. So the tendency is to keep climbing, climbing, climbing that escalation ladder. So the, the logic of escalation is, you know, ever present. Now, aside from the actual use of nuclear weapons, Daniel Ellsberg in his book, The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear Warrior, and Daniel Ellsberg, for our audience who might not know him, recently passed away. He was the one who released the Pentagon Papers that showed that the Pentagon and the U.S. government had lied to the American people for more than a decade about the Vietnam War, and he faced prosecution and possible jail time. He was considered the consummate whistleblower and really helped, you know, expose the Vietnam War. Well, he says in his book, which he wrote many decades later, when he tried to inquire as a young sort of official in the Rand Corporation, he asked from the Pentagon, what would be the number of casualties if the U.S. actually used nuclear weapons, if there was a nuclear war? And he thought the number would be whatever, something, something. But he kind of figured the Pentagon didn't have the number. He was kind of sort of poking them and asking them, do you actually, have you thought about how many people will die? And then he was amazed, he says in the book, that he got a very specific answer, that he, 
they said they thought about 600 million would die or some huge number. And then in his book, he goes on to show that the numbers actually would be quite a bit higher than 600 million. In fact, it could be the end of all living things. But the point that he makes in the book is the nuclear weapons are being used even if they're not detonating, even if they're not exploding, because you can use them as a threat. And Michio Kaku, in his book, To Win a Nuclear War, Michio Kaku is a physicist here in New York City, or was, he has documents that they were able to get through public records requests that showed that the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Pentagon in May 1953 had unanimously decided to start dropping nuclear bombs all over North Korea and China unless the North Koreans came to the negotiating table and signed an armistice agreement to end the Korean War, which the U.S. thought it would win but then could not win. And the North Koreans wanted to keep fighting and fighting and fighting like the North Vietnamese did until they reunified their country. But three months later, probably under pressure from China and the Soviet Union, the North Koreans signed that July 27th, 1953 armistice agreement ending the Korean War, or at least the military conflict. So that would be an example of how nuclear weapons actually were used even though they didn't detonate. So they were actually a factor in military and political calculations. Do you, do you see it that way? Yes, very much so. And I would add that they are used to affect the psychology and decision space available to the president, and they prop up the Washington consensus about how the world actually works. So there is kind of a feeling that we have nuclear weapons and will never be defeated in any of our expeditionary military activities because we can always draw on nuclear weapons. And I think there was, uh, I forget who the author was, there's a book on the Vietnam War that discusses this psychology in the planning of the Vietnam War. How could we lose? We can't lose. We have atomic bombs. Mm. And it was only when there was a careful review of just how those bombs could be used in, in the Vietnam War that it was discovered that, no, they weren't going to be a, a winning weapon. That, in fact, if we started using atomic bombs against North Vietnam, we would not succeed, they would not have much effect, but if they were used against us, they would drive us right out of Vietnam quickly because our forces were concentrated in bases and theirs were not. Hmm. So when Truman and Burns waved the kind of atomic bomb in the face of the Russians, they discovered very quickly that the Russians didn't scare, that the Russians understood that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were all about them. They knew that this wasn't about defeating Japan. They weren't, didn't have any mistaken ideas about that. But it's surprising, actually, to people when you look at how far, I mean, we're looking now at an image of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, and the devastation is total. But it's in terms of a complete theater of war, it is not total. And so it's surprising how ineffective nuclear weapons are against a dispersed military force. Colin Powell discovered that when he did exercises. But I guess to return, the main thing that I wanted to emphasize is that 
this psychology of nuclear superiority, what the Air Force has called the aegis, the nuclear aegis over our expeditionary forces, affects our own psychology and our own U.S. willingness to place our forces in conflict around the world. I think it's important because as a socialist, Greg, I, I think of modern war as the outgrowth of a modern global system, the system of capitalism and imperialism. But I don't want to be, and I don't think it's useful to be overly deterministic about that because there are human beings who actually make decisions. And a lot of them make bad decisions. And those bad decisions can be premised on faulty premises, like the premise that we can't lose. We can't lose because we have nuclear weapons. So this, this kind of built-in hubris and arrogance, you know, again, with a lot of racism mixed in, like the U.S. could never lose in Vietnam because we were the United States of America and they're a, an Asian country and, you know, a smaller country. But, you know, this heavy dose of anti-Asian racism, which is always a factor and still a factor, still a very dominating factor. So you have hubris, racism, and then the other, the counter incentive, which is if you stand up and say, no, this is really stupid. This is ridiculous. This is a fantasy that because we have nuclear weapons, we can stomp all over people all over the world and they won't resist and we can't lose. If you say no, well, it's one thing for Greg Mello to say no or Brian Becker to say no, but if you're a member of Congress, you're going to be like taken to task. Mm -hmm. And so even the people who had historically been the doves, the liberals, the people who would have said, let's have better relations with Russia, not prepare for major power conflict, those people are basically gone. I mean, with a tiny, tiny handful, the doves in Congress are, well, they're dead. There are no doves. The doves are hawks. Mm -hmm. The doves have become hawks. And so you think about a conflict like Ukraine, where the U.S., I think, just with the same arrogance and hubris, pushed everything to the brink, knew and even predicted that Russia would invade, and then serenely stayed away from the negotiating table rather than urgently returning to it and trying to avoid a military conflict. I think the U.S. policymakers feel, one, we're stronger, we're going to win, Russia's weaker, over time they'll weaken. And by the way, if I stand up and say, no, this is a bad idea, it's probably going to be the end of my political career. Mm -hmm. And maybe the New York Times is going to investigate me to see if I'm soft on Russia or if I'm soft on China. People who are actually saying right now, Greg, you know, peace is better than confrontation with China. They're being like targeted as if they're like sort of agents or extension of China or echoing Chinese talking points as opposed to stating something that's reasonable and makes sense. That's where we are politically. Mm -hmm. I mean, practically speaking, we get a lot of calls for, well, people realize nuclear weapons are very bad. So, okay, we get that. And so we need nuclear disarmament. Okay. That's become in some circles a little bit like motherhood and apple pie. It's almost a platitude or a cliche. So what's the next step? Well, you have to start talking to the major nuclear powers and find out what their security concerns are, or you won't be able to have any diplomacy or negotiations. So honestly the and simply, we have to find a way to peace in Ukraine 
which takes Russia's basically on Russia's terms or on terms which satisfy Russia's security needs. That's the first step to nuclear disarmament right now. And for folks to just say, as many progressives these days are saying, oh, we have to have nuclear disarmament. If they're not including the practical anti-war pro-diplomacy step in there, it begins to smell pretty bad like they're not paying any attention to the elephant in the room and just you know paying homage to this nuclear disarmament ideal, which is fine as far as it goes, but this is not 1991 anymore. Yeah. One of the, the things that you can see shaping up in terms of the U.S. military strategy towards China is the U.S. is basically establishing a ring of first island nations that are basically U.S. military installations all around China in the Pacific. And I wanted to get your take on it because you are an expert in terms of assessing U.S. military strategy, not simply nuclear weapons. It seems to me that the logic here is that the U.S. thinks that if there's some sort of eventual military clash with China in the Pacific, that it will be a limited war because China won't dare climb the escalation ladder and make it a global thermonuclear war. So in other words, you can actually have a military containment strategy that becomes regional and limited to a region rather than becoming global, which would obviously assure the destruction of all. And that seems, again, to be based on this kind of hubris and arrogance as if China doesn't understand what's going on or China's too scared or China's intimidated. But you can see that the U.S. military doctrine is based on nuclear primacy, primacy, not nuclear parity, not nuclear deterrence, but nuclear primacy such that it would sort of scare off China or Russia from ever daring to go all the way with the United States because the U.S. can, quote, win that war, too. So we're back to sort of a a calculation where nuclear war becomes winnable in the strategic thinking or strategic framework of policymakers. And again, almost as a consensus and almost without any debate. Yes. The reality, I think, is that China could defeat the U.S. military without nuclear weapons. And, you know, the, the RAND Corporation studied this several years ago, said there was, a, there was a small window where the U.S. might be able to prevail before China succeeds in building up its forces. Well, I think that was kind of a euphemism at the time, and it's even more so now. China can sink U.S. power projection in, you know, aircraft carriers and their battle groups before U.S. warplanes can reach the point where they could attack the positions in China. It's, you know, basically uh, someone made the remark, U.S. has there's two kinds of ships in the Navy, submarines and targets. And we have a basically obsolete power projection approach right now. And the idea that we are going to be able to outproduce China and be able to defeat China in its own backyard. I think this is coming from that same delusion that said, oh yes, Russia is going to collapse as soon as their military encounters NATO-equipped and trained forces in Ukraine. And 
from the economic sanctions. Russia didn't collapse. Russia's stronger. The BRICS countries are growing. There's the dollar is eroding as the world's currency. We are still extremely dependent on China for key technologies as well as materials. We have to get along with people. We're not in a position to call the shots whether we have nuclear weapons or not. Finally, Greg, you know, the U.S. thought they could invade North Korea, which started in the second half of 1950 in the Korean War, 1950 to 53. And then the Chinese and the North Koreans drove the U.S. back below the 38th parallel. So the U.S. didn't succeed in Korea. And then we pivoted to Vietnam. We, the U.S. government, pivoted to Vietnam. And again, they were sure they would win, as you pointed out, because they had so many weapons and such superior weapons. But the U.S. lost. The U.S. invaded so many other countries. Yes, it defeated Grenada, a country of 250,000. Congratulations to the Pentagon on that one. The U.S. invaded Panama in 1989. Then it went to an air war and a, finally an, a ground invasion of Iraq in 1991. Then a war against Yugoslavia. The U.S. succeeded at destroying the government and country of Yugoslavia. Then it invaded Afghanistan. And 20 years later, the U.S. basically surrendered to the Taliban. The U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, and while they weren't driven out completely from the country, they certainly, I mean, my point is the U.S. is, yeah, destroying Libya, destroying Grenada, destroying Yugoslavia, but losing most of these wars. And if you can't beat the Taliban, but your policy planners are saying, yeah, but let's everybody get ready for war with Russia and China after we couldn't defeat the Taliban, we, the U.S. government, couldn't defeat the Taliban. The lunacy of this whole situation becomes obvious. And yet the thing that's missing, and I think this is the most crucial thing, and the thing that's most crucial about your work and the work of other anti-war forces is that the, we have to reach the people of the United States. If people think Congress is going to be the ticket to change, it's not. Mm -hmm. The mainstream media, no. It's like an echo chamber for the same hubris and arrogance and racism. So we have to reach the people of the United States. That's, that's a hard task because the media and the institutional power is so vast, and yet there is no other option. And it seems to me there is nothing more urgent than to do just that. I wanna just get your final thoughts and also ask you as you wrap up, if people wanna get in touch with the Los Alamos study group, if they wanna support you, how do they do that? Yes, well, that last one first, you can reach us at www.lasg, Los Alamos Study Group, lasg.org. So that's easy. Yes, we have to reach the people of the country. Now, it seems very daunting, and it is daunting, but there are some factors working in our favor. These forces which are making these terrible decisions are also bleeding the country dry. And I think a lot of people understand that. I think a lot of people understand that Congress does not really represent them and they are not happy about, a lot of people are not happy about spending more than a hundred billion. I think it's probably about 150 billion now on a war in Ukraine that is just basically killing Ukrainians and some Russians, but mostly Ukrainians. And there 
is a discontent in the land. We don't have to create the discontent. We can flavor it, as it were, and help people understand some of the causes of this. And I think that, you know, we can reach out across the aisle in a lot of cases and try to avoid getting divided excessively, you know, by identity politics, which almost seems crafted to keep people apart and prevent a kind of critical mass of discontent from arising. And we have to go around and around the mainstream media where we can't work with it, which is usually the case. So there's a lot to do and a lot of it is quite rewarding personally. So I think that's worth mentioning too, where people are finding solidarity with each other. Young people are finding solidarity. People are doing a lot of really rewarding things in a practical way to oppose this war machine, to work with each other, to put uh, resilience into their own communities on the left and on the right. You know, and I think it's a great moment of opportunity in the country. And yes, it's actually going to be quite terrible because a lot of stuff is going to hit the fan here very quickly. But that is an opportunity for all of us. And how we subjectively experience that depends in a large part on how courageous we are in our own response. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. The only way to win this one is to fight to organize, to mobilize, to learn, to educate ourselves, help our neighbors, coworkers, family members learn more. And of course, ultimately, and we know this throughout history, viable mass movements, grassroots movements become the agency for real change. And nothing requires change more than this struggle, the struggle between war and peace, between social justice and militarism. Greg Mello, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Best wishes. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.